grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Jo Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Adopt Perspective. I'm your host and president of Jigsaw Queensland, Joe Sparrow. Ten years ago, this 21st of March, we commemorated the 10th anniversary of the Federal Apology for Past Forced Adoption Policies and Practices. The apology was a direct result of tireless advocacy by those affected, which led to a Senate inquiry and resulting report. I thought it fitting that today we interview someone who has been a powerful ally of those affected by forced adoption and who was an integral part in how the apology came about. Claire Moore was elected to the Australian Senate for Queensland in 2001 and retired at the expiration of her final term in 2019. During her distinguished career, she acted as Deputy Chair of the Community Affairs and References Committee inquiry into former forced adoption policies and practices. Today, we're going to talk to Claire about her experience and how far we've come and what is left to still be accomplished. Welcome to Adopt Perspective, Claire. It's an honour to have you join us. I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you. Claire, how and when did you first become aware of Australia's dark history with adoption? I've been asked that question so many times and I cannot remember the first, the date of the first time a small group of women came to my office. They had been contacting um, people in Parliament for a long time and senators seemed to be a good place to go, I think. People always end up with the senators. Uh, and four really determined women, um, extremely well-dressed, um, had come to see the senator in the valley office that we had. And they sat down and they just opened up with this extraordinary story. And they touched me in a way that um, I will never forget. I have maintained contact with many of them over the years. But they were prepared, they were determined, and they had a mission and they wanted to ensure that what happened to them would be known and that there would be some response from the people that they should rely on, which are the people in government, the people that represent them. And they were not going to go away ever, ever. Yeah, yeah. Um, we know that it's the tireless work of advocates that leads to action. However, I, I sort of wondered if you could pull back the curtain and give us a little bit of insight as to how the inquiry came to pass behind the scenes. Well, after we met with the women in Brisbane, you could not be unaffected and they left me so much. I think often it is the immediate personal contact, but then it's all the information that you find out afterwards, which then leads to more contact. And they left me a lot of information about previous inquiries that had happened about which I knew nothing. And unfortunately, that's often the case with inquiries and, and issues in our community, that they have a moment in time uh, there's a focus somewhere in our federation and federations are wonderful, but they are problematic. Uh, and a lot of effort is ex expended and a lot of people in a small place know about it, but then it's someone else's turn. The page turns. And we were able to find out through discussion with women and with other people that um, there had been inquiries in New South Wales which had raised this issue. Um, there had been discussions at the same time, a group of women, groups of women, and they were mainly women, but not only, but it was the mothers. It was the mothers that came to us first. Uh, they had been talking with parliamentarians all around the country because they got together and they determined that what they wanted was a national inquiry, that they thought that they had this effort at the states, even though they found out the states were the responsible body in many ways. They felt that the issue was more national and they wanted to have a Senate inquiry and they came with that request 
So a lot of work had gone on, you know, in their advocacy before they came to me and before they came to our batch, the group of people in that mid 21st century that um, around 20, oh, I even forget the date, but you know, everyone will know when we had the apology, which took a few years. So there was the planning and then there was the opportunity to find out what had gone on before. And then there was the concern without our, within a group of women who were part of the Community Affairs Committee, the Parliamentary Committee in the Senate, that really got it. We got together and we'd all had uh, representations. We heard from different people, different organisations, and we knew that there was something there that needed to be done. And uh, the way that works in Parliament is that you get enough people interested in an issue and then they go back through their party process to determine whether there'd be support across the Senate to have an inquiry. And we actually had that support across the Labor Party, which is where I'm from, the Liberal Party and the Greens, they came together and there was a motion brought to the Senate that there would be an inquiry with quite a detailed terms of reference, which would be looking at this issue. And um, from then it rolled on and the whole process continued. Yeah. So what was the role and the aim of the committee while undertaking the inquiry? I think always with things like this, you need to see what's already been done. So inquiries needed to see what had been done already. And that's where so much wealth of evidence came out because these are not news stories. They have been in our community for many years. And when people read our report, you can see a chapter that's dedicated to what had gone before. So you look at what the body of evidence was already. Then you actually work out a process to see, working with the people who'd been stimulating the inquiry, uh, where we should go. Because I'm a firm believer that particularly with the Senate, which is the I think the, um, the policy area of parliament, that we should not limit our inquiries to Canberra-based we should try and go to as many places within a budget, within a reasonable period of time, uh, to give people at local levels the opportunity to come and see it. So we map out a schedule. And then the very first thing, because we are very well supported in the parliament with extraordinarily uh, skilled and professional secretariat staff, and they do a lot of the research and they go out and they advertise. There's a formal way of advertising Senate inquiries on the parliamentary websites uh, and also in a number of newspapers all across the country because we need to bring people to us. Of course, there was great organisation in the community of mothers and the adopted families, adopted communities uh, that knew that this was coming because they'd been part of the agitation to get it to happen. So we were not in any way lost for having people who wanted to talk to us and submissions. So you call for written submissions. On the basis of written submissions, you plan a travel schedule and a number of hearings, which are then funded and publicised. And uh, over a period of time, you go from there. And that's what happened. And we went all around the country uh, and heard from a range of people, academics who were very active in this area. We've been blessed always when we have these inquiries, we find, about, find knowledgeable people that have had all this experience that they want to share with us, but no one had asked. So we had academics, we had organisations, because by this time, a number of organisations had formed to be the voices of mothers. Uh, and then we had organisations in welfare and support agencies who had already been dealing with the trauma that many of the people who'd been touched by this issue had felt. So many of the counselling organisations, professional psychologists who are already working in the field. Uh, we had people, I, I just forget at the moment how many uh, submissions we received but one of the joys of the senate is that everything is recorded so one of the wealths that we have is that not only is the committee report there with the report that was written and the recommendations but there's a full list of every submission that's been received and there's a full record of every public hearing that we've had and so that is there which is i think a really important aspect of this whole process that you now you have a body of evidence on which more cases, more information, more action can be built. So um, I look back at this inquiry, as I do at many of the inquiries we were lucky enough to do, and you know, take some real comfort in the fact that we now have recorded evidence that anyone who's interested in the issue can read up on it and then look at where they fit and what should happen next. Uh, 
I, we never get to everyone. One of the issues that we find, and I know we've talked about this, Joanne, is that you think that everybody knows about it because you're so closely involved in it and you know so many people who've been affected, who've got personal experience. But I am sure that today, whenever this is, anyone's watching this, today there'll be people out there who are still completely unaware that mm -hmm. this extraordinarily awful, in the true sense of awful, issue was shared by so many people over so many years in our nation and so many people were affected and continue to be affected. So I, I would expect that sometime in the next couple of months I'll be somewhere and um, somebody will say, um, I know someone who is affected by that. I was adopted. I lost my child. I don't know where I come from. And they'll, they'll often come up very quietly when you're at another event or talking with people and just sort of come and say that quietly. And I know. It's quiet and that goodness. Here we go. Carry on. I know that of all the inquiries I've been involved in, and I know I've spoken with you about this before, Joanne, that this one, this one about women and children who were taken and the trauma is the one that I find most often that people want to quietly talk about. Mm. And I just, with all the, all the issues and all the things that our Senate was involved in, it still is the one where every now and then a woman, mostly a woman, but sometimes a, a young person will just come quietly up and say, um, my mum was affected by this. And yeah. I think that tells its own story. Yeah, absolutely. And it takes so much courage for people to step forward and to share their traumatic experiences. Um, do you have any moments or memories that have really stayed with you? Many, many. And when you called me and talked about this, it, it, I put my mind back on it. And um, uh, look, the, the um, courage and the energy the real energy that people came to us, that they had prepared themselves to tell us their story. Again, that purposeful um, event of that very first meeting with the women in my office, I'll never forget that. I will never forget that. And um, um, and the people in my office, uh, uh, when we go through a Senate inquiry, particularly one which touches so many people, everybody in my office was affected. They spoke to the people on the phone. They met them. Some of them have maintained friendships over many years. It becomes a shared experience, and that's across all the senators and the secretariat. Um, but I remember um, a mother and child, a young woman who came to see us in one of our in one of our hearings, and um, the the twelve year old girl spoke about the impact that learning about her mum and her experiences had had on her and that um, she'd always wished that she'd known um, the child that she didn't know and this mm. was a little girl and I thought wow you know that's that's telling um, some of the dads that came um, they were not known in the first round of discussions we had, but over the period of the commission hearing, of the um, committee hearings, that came out. Um, had a, another range of experiences. You know, some of the women that came to us, they were alone. They did not have the support of a partner and most often they didn't have the support of a family. That was always traumatic where the, the women, sometimes 20 and 30 years later, were reliving the experiences of being rejected by their families. I found that extraordinarily confronting and yeah. um, and something that I don't know how you ever grow beyond that. Um, I, just so one more. Um, there was a couple that came to see us and uh, they had been um, together as a young couple and uh, she found out that she was having a child. He was actually in the army and going had been sent to Vietnam and they really wanted to be together. They He was thrilled um, that they may have a child, but he was in the army and went off. And um, 
the system stepped in and the system was seen as all the way through the enemy was the system and they they use that term a lot um they determined the system determined that she was alone and um even though they really wanted to be a couple and, and share their child they weren't allowed to so yeah. it was not a case where there was not a family that was going to be available to them it was a case that the system stopped that happening and yeah. and I, well, I shouldn't i i we, they come pouring into my mind but um there was a lady in uh, one of the cities where a well-known hospital had a long history of being involved in this process and uh, she did not want to lose her child but she was told categorically that the child had died so she lived with the fact that she her child had died and only found out many years later that the child hadn't died um, and in fact was taken into the system um, and she had that double sense of guilt that somehow if she had only known she would have been able to do something about it but so many of these stories are so deeply personal but there's that running through all of it this sense of loss and grief and anger and just what could have been and what should have been and what makes um adoption loss from all angles so um different to uh, you know other types of grief and loss i think is that it's disenfranchised by society so nobody recognizes it you weren't allowed to talk about it you had to put it no. down and continue on with your life adopted people are told be grateful everything worked out for the best aren't you lucky um yeah so there's no supports you know no. from general society yeah i think the key point all the way through was that the system got it wrong of course mm -hmm. but also that through the whole process there was no support yeah. there was no support for the women and many of them are very young that was true many of them were very young there was no support for the the young woman or their families um in terms of what options were available and of course many of the women who came to see us were in the situation before there was real knowledge about government support because it came way too late that there was an option for women to have a single parent payment. Um, mm -hmm. The angering thing was there was, for many of the women who spoke with us, that payment was still there and they were still denied the opportunity. They were told that it wouldn't work. And, you know, that was one of the things that happened that did give a little bit more independence for people who had that ability. Not everybody, but for some. But there was no support for them. There was absolutely no support for the adopted parents. And I find that you know, unbelievable. The whole process was set up on the basis that this would be, and that you heard it over and over again, in the best interest of the child, that the child uh, and would have a better opportunity in a what people considered a standard family. I will never use the term normal. Um, a standard family, whatever that is. Um, but then there didn't be any support for the standard family to help them through what is clearly a really difficult thing. You know, it's hard enough anyone to be a parent, but when people take the make the decision that they are being a parent through adoption, they need particular help, and it wasn't there. And for anyone who was a child in that situation, again, no support. And it was, again, that the system was determined with, pontifical statements and when you read the legislation when you read some of the speeches that you found in different places about the rationale um, it was full of well-meaning and quite judgmental phrases but no understanding of trauma for anyone involved just yeah. a system based on judgment and everybody needed support and that was broken from the very start. That support was broken from the start, which I think has led, in my opinion, to um, the troubled communication between um, people who are caught up in the system, that adopted parents um, and uh, people who are birth parents, and I know that term is controversial, there, is, there seems to be a trauma and a tension between those groups and I think that starts from the fact that no one was supported through the process that it was yeah. an imposed process and I find that really sad I find that really sad and it means that people with really good intentions and desire to do well 
are, are not understood. They don't understand each other. And that trauma and that difference continues. And I find that one of the most difficult parts of the, of the future about how those groups can be brought together to look what they all claim, you know, the best interest of the child. And yeah. um, I've grown to loathe that term to absolutely loathe it and it covers so many other elements of judgment and decision making yeah um claire in our work we can't help but bring to it a lens from of our own experiences and i know yeah. that you and i both lived for a period of our lives on the darling downs an area that would have seen many young women impacted by forced adoption policies and practices i just wonder if you have any personal reflections or experiences of that time and the attitudes that prevailed well, the attitudes were so strong. I mean, I went to I went through the Catholic school system, and um, you know there was that clear understanding that uh, it was not the right thing to fall pregnant with it outside of marriage. And um, you know, you live with that. You were taught about that. Um, sometimes I think back, and I um, I'm just amazed at some of the the um, rhetoric that was thrown around and the, again I keep coming back to this term judgment because I think it, it is the basis of all this process but you know we all knew about the young women who disappeared you know disappeared we knew about the places that where girls were sent we were told about that because that was part of the the um, counseling you don't want that um, and I know young women who had that experience in of my own generation and they were all deeply affected um, and uh, not, I can't think of any single woman, and I did think about this all the way through we were doing this inquiry of my group that ever then had the child and actually that child part became that part of the family. The family unit was still seen as I go back to that standard family. Um, I also am concerned that... Uh, the education process, certainly in the in the 70s, um, didn't give enough practical understanding exactly how things work, and that you know lack of sex education comes up all the way through. You know this uh, at that stage, and I'm not convinced it's much better now. I really am not. That's one of the worries, and the the lack of just um, uh, sexual education so that people know about their bodies and what happens. That was never seen as a priority. It was actually dismissed, and I think that's an issue. Um, I think one of the things that, that still d disturbed me during the key, the process was the the cruelty of some of the of some of the places that were set up to provide protection for young women who, and I keep saying young because most of the women were young, but. Um, women who were pregnant out of marriage without support um, were the places they were sent. And it was almost like a jail sentence. They were sent away that it was um, not only sinful but unlawful. And, of course, it wasn't, you know, that they were sent away. Um, and, what you know, what you discovered about the abject cruelty of the way they were treated. And now I think that's been exposed much more. And of course, we've um, it's been happening all around the world. We're seeing what's happened, particularly in Commonwealth countries. It's amazing. You know, um, the UK, um, Ireland, Canada seem to be the places that have exposed this most. Um, but it was the, not only was it the trauma of finding out that you were having a child, it was the process of judgment that continued and the the way you were treated while you were pregnant and then to have that ended with the child being taken away. Um, I think all of us were affected by just how cruel it was and yeah. lack of support and lack of care. And we knew, I grew up in Toowoomba, we knew the girls went away to, to Brisbane. Some disappeared and some came back magically afterwards but never back into the mainstream and uh, that why would your life be so affected at 15, 16, 17, 21? You know, that's the start of your life. It should not be uh, the end. You should not be labelled. You should not have to carry those burdens alone. Yeah. The Commonwealth apology was a key recommendation that was made mm. by the committee. And on the day of the apology, then Prime Minister Julia Gillard um, commented that it is important for a nation, its people to reflect and acknowledge past wrongdoing. How do you see this apology as being important in the history of our nation? I 
talked to many of the women in, and men and adopted people who were all part of that apology. And, you know, in the opening, it, it's very everyone, when they, we've had a series of government apologies and they are not spontaneous. A lot of work and planning goes in to ensure that the words can be as effective as Ava can be um, because there is you're, you're responding to so much pain that each group, was identified um, and that caused some you know division because again there's division in the people who had be, been affected by these policies um, and that is very sensitive and that it, even that was in how you got those different groups identified so I talked to the people or listened to the people to whom the apology was was meant and I was really reinforced by their response that it was important to them in fact they came out all the way through. It wasn't the only thing they sought. They didn't want the apology to be token and they didn't want it to be the end response, but they wanted the acknowledgement. And that had been the response that we'd heard from the stolen generation. It had been the one, the response we'd heard from people in institutional care. They wanted their experience to be acknowledged and the fact that they were not in the wrong. They didn't want to be judged anymore. Um, so for me, that was important and, it, and it, it builds upon the other apologies. I don't think you can ever look at one of the national apologies in isolation because it builds upon our understanding as a nation and as a community, an Australian community, that we had hurt people. Our rules, our structure, our system had hurt people and it was wrong. And that needed to be identified. So I think it builds. I think nothing is isolated. And the the fact that the apology happened is valued. And um, I know it made me feel stronger, which was great because it was something that we identified and that was responded to. Um, but I'm actually heartened by the way that the people involved have, have responded to that apology and the fact that they commemorate it. And you know that when we have the commemoration events, People want to be there and it's a sharing experience for them. And it, I always feel strengthened when I walk away from those apologies and I feel warmth and the mm -hmm. fact that the people involved feel that was important. The words are there now in our parliament. They, they cannot be removed. The acknowledgement is there and it's a point of um, time to which other things can be added so that when you have that apology, then you move forward to the other things that should happen. Yeah. And I think um, you brought up something I think is important is that the commemoration, so every year since then, um, we have had an anniversary here in Queensland, an anniversary yeah. event, as have many states. Um, and, you know, I myself, I didn't attend the original apology. I, I think it was the first anniversary that I went to the yeah. Queensland yeah. apology. Yep. And I hadn't thought it was about me until I sat there and I read it. And I really, even though I'd known my mother's experience, I realized mm -hmm. she had she had no other options. Um, and that, yes, this did apply to her experience and my experience. And mm -hmm. so that was a very powerful moment for me to understand that she had been caught up in all of this, as had I. Um, yep. So which is why the anniversaries are important, I guess. I think it helps the conversations yeah. because we found often that conversations couldn't happen that it's almost like a wound where it, it builds up and builds up and builds up that it's harder to heal mm -hmm. um and so many people came to us and said it was the first time they'd actually shared the story they hadn't told anyone else um yeah. and that they'd been um made aware that this when they had their senate inquiry and then subsequently the commission that they then had an opportunity to come forward to help others because mm -hmm. um, so many of these people have got together over the years and they know other people who haven't had the ability to share and the way that something that's constantly um, pushed down and um, ignored or hated, how that can hurt a person. How You cannot be well if you're hiding from something that's causing you trauma and uh, again, one of the things I've noticed at the reunions or the acknowledgements, both the state one and the national one, is that um, you don't you see new faces every now and then. 
and uh, generational, you know, sometimes children and grandchildren who have found out something about their past and people are seeking where they come from. They're seeking to know their past and that's becoming much more commonplace in our society and it's very sad that there are still people in our community that won't know where they come from because there's a, a block at one stage and I find that really sad. I, um, I like the fact that I can trace my heritage. Um, I, it, you know, some of it could be not right, <laughs> but at least I have a, a track that I can follow and good and bad, I can see it. And um, the other thing that's come up so much more, Joanne, now is people understanding that they need to have their medical history. Mm-hmm. That wasn't so much said during our um, our um, inquiry. In fact, it came up a few times, but it wasn't the number one thing that people talked about. Um, but I think subsequently, as we learn more about um, medical um, understanding and research, it's important to know where your body comes from because it can help you in your future and about making decisions about your own health. And I, um, another thing that, that struck me was so many of the people who came to see us um, were not healthy, you know, not fully healthy because it had an impact on their well-being. It had an impact on their mental health, of course, and that's why I'm so pleased now that there seems to be more um, support available and more professional support available because you need both. You need that kind of love and family support, but you need professional support as well because this is deep This is deep trauma, deep trauma. Um, but people um, were not healthy and some of that was to do with the, the the trauma but some of it was that they just hadn't looked after themselves and that that sense that they were not worthy that they'd done something wrong and began this overwhelming thing of judgment that they were at fault and um, it is like um, it's like a wound it just wears away at you and um, I I hope and certainly something our committee talked about, we kind, we, we really believe that having the inquiry, having the public awareness and acknowledgement and then the commission would have had some healing effect, um, just some acknowledgement, just that people, this was something that they could talk about and could share if they wanted to. They were in control. The system wasn't telling them what they could and couldn't do. Yeah. Um, the Senate report estimated that there were as many as 150,000 adoptions between 1951 yep. to 1975 and yep. 250,000 from 1940 to the present day. Now, because every adoption involves two biological parents, two adoptive parents, other immediate family and extended family, and the adoptive person themselves, as well as future generations, it is impossible to know how many people have been affected by these practices. And yet I feel that the forced adoption, that forced adoption doesn't have near as much community recognition as some other prominent issues that occurred around that same period. Why do you think that is? Uh, <laughs> um, one, of the, one of the appalling things was sometimes records were deliberately falsified. Mm-hmm. That was a real problem. And in institutions that knew better, that knew better, that kept other very detailed records, but somehow this was not kept well. And that created a lot of anger and frustration. Um, I, I Look, I, I come back to the fact that this was an issue that people were, there's a sense of shame about it. Um, there was also um, the issue of charities being involved so much and um, not being transparent. Uh, it, it was amazing. In some cases, detailed records with the most horrifically judgmental comments were kept in detail. So you'd see that and then you'd see someone, the only thing that was registered was a name, if that, and then that immediate, the sense that the child disappeared and they suddenly were recreated, you know, suddenly this being was recreated. Um, I think the importance of documentation is really important. Oh, what do we stupid things say? The importance of documentation is critical and people want to have that sense of acknowledgement. So one of the big things that came out, as you know, is um, birth, death and marriage records. And it is such seemingly something that we didn't think as a Senate committee could be that difficult. We thought, oh, the 
the legal people, but of course the Federation is hard getting all the states together. Um, we thought this would be relatively straightforward. And as you know, it is not and continues to be a bugbear about, um, you know, documentation. And um, I would think that that continues to rankle with so many people. Um, I look, I have to, I when I think about this, it goes back to my much repeated comment <laughs> about judgment. Mm. There was a judgment about this. There was something to be hidden something to be ashamed of. And the way adoption was discussed in those days, which I think has changed quite quite dramatically, is there needed to be this sense they wanted to have a clean slate. They wanted to destroy everything that went before, that the, the best process was to have a whole new identity created, that somehow the adopted relationship would only be um, effective and um, positive if there was no hint of the past and that the idea was to stop history and you can't stop history no matter what you do no matter what process is put in place you can't stop that's gone before and i hope that the system has learned from that and i think that's one that was one of the major reasons because when we had people who came and gave evidence who were we didn't have many people who were still around that were part of the, the most effective system. That was mainly through history. But we had people who came to the inquiry who genuinely felt that they had done the right thing, that given all the circumstances, given all the issues that were around, um, that they the idea was to adoption was the answer, that you would actually um, start fresh, give people a good chance. And they still believe that. I think there are people out there who still believe that, that you, you should not have this sense of what happened before and that coloured the amount of documentation that was available. Uh, and I think that's part of the grief that the, um, the mothers and the fathers who were um, who had given up the children or had... I, should, I should, shouldn't say given up because that was the, the, the thing that was said by the system, who had had their children taken from them. Um, uh, that they somehow not worthy. They were not yeah. worthy. And that was the stain that continued on their lives. And I think that we must continue to ensure that that stain is removed. Yeah. It's not a stain. Um, and uh, make sure that the system into the future has a greater acknowledgement of what people need and the services that need to be provided. And that lack of documentation for adopted people too is, you know, the first chapters of our lives are missing. And so when we go looking for it, um, you know, through freedom of information or getting our adoption records and there's so little contained there, it, it can be incredibly frustrating because it's like we thought that might contain the something because we're trying to fill up this hole, you know, inside of us. with It's a double betrayal. It We've is, yeah. The difficult process of working through the system and then you get back something that, I don't, I'm, I've listened to a few people, getting back nothing is bad if they can't find it. And in some cases, because the organisations that were involved were quite small with a charity base, um, documents were not kept well, you know. And my goodness, the number of times I've heard in seeking documentation, it was the floods. They were lost in the floods, you know. Mm -hmm. A lot was lost in the floods. <laughs> um, floods and fires. Floods and fires. <laughs> but then when you get something that's been redacted, you know, mm -hmm. where bits of... I, I think that is... I've, I thought I, I, well, you know, you always think, how would you feel? And I think getting something with lots of redactions would hurt more, you know. It what's does, behind yeah. behind that? What's yeah. behind it? Why, do, why am I not getting the whole story? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I can remember getting my paperwork and um, my father's, you know, putative father's name had been redacted. And I'm like, I can tell you what his oh. name is. I've met him. You know, I know his family. Yeah. I've been to a reunion. And um, still they couldn't undo it because of FOI laws at the time, which has changed here in Queensland. But, um, yeah. But it takes so long. And as you know, and you work with, I mean, many of the people who have been affected across the board of impact, we lose people. Mm. And they don't have that opportunity to just put that piece into the into their past because yeah. we lose them. And that's so sad. That is so yeah. sad. Yeah. 
So as a result of the inquiry, 20 recommendations were made by the committee and there have been some positive resolutions since the report and apology, but there remains considerable unfinished business. Um, in Queensland, there are currently calls for redress, integrated birth certificates and a simpler process to discharge adoptions. I know you've stepped away from politics now, however, um, I just wondered if I might ask your thoughts on what still sure. needs to be addressed moving forward. It's, look, certainly one of the things that needs to be looked at is um, the the documentation. And uh, it just seems to create so many issues in terms of every... We're dealing with a group of... A large group of people who have contested rights. And uh, I think it goes back to the fact that the communication has been so appalling for so long that there's a sense of contest. And I, I think that is um, so so terribly sad that there's still contest about whose rights um, should be um, listened to most. There must be a way through that. And I think that in my judgment, people can get together and come up with a solution on this and they haven't done it yet. And mm. uh, that's, a, that's a, a gaping loss in where we go for, into the future. Um, so I think that documentation process needs to be put um, really given a priority which hasn't been up till now. It's it's not been a priority. Um, I think the whole process around adoption, um, the discussions need to be had and I know that's painful and I have never been a person who has um, just, just uh, said that adoption is wrong. And many of the people I work with and the women that I worked with found that very hard. And they were, they were really angry. I remember in one committee, a woman just started yelling um, her abuse at me personally because I would not say that I thought adoption should be banned because there are so many people in that process who have had very positive experiences and there's been a lot of love and care. And um, they should not be demonised. That whole process shouldn't be. And as you know, there's been um, many, many calls over the years to... Um, bring adoption, making adoption easier. And that causes so much pain with the people who've gone through what's gone before. But we just need to communicate um, better and be very open all the way through and close no doors. The more doors you close, there'll be people who want to need to have them open. So try and keep that going. And I'm not saying that's easy. So I think that the whole process around um, family support, adoption support, People's support should be funded better, um, researched better, and more professional training offered so that people, particularly people who've had experience, should be able to be part of that. And I think that's something we can do better. And there are real pockets of excellence in that space, and we need to do that. Redress is one of those ones that you know always creates concern because it's about, some of it is about money. Um, and uh, that's one where there's a wide range of views in this case. But I don't think it should be off the table. I think people should be able to look at it. Certainly the government um, that I was part of and the committee that I was part of favoured um, support that was available to people with their health, with their um, rebuilding lives, with their access to documentation rather than a monetary payout. And that is still something that is contested. I don't think we should be opposed to a monetary payout. And it's very, very similar to what's going on with the institutional care and institutional abuse process. There is a space within the whole area for this to be considered and to be discussed without um, people, again, closing doors. That um, You'll find that's always particularly sensitive when it comes to government discussion. But there is absolutely no reason that, that, that the communication shouldn't continue. And uh, the various support groups, such as Jigsaw, um, do have a role to play in this to ensure that people's voices are brought together and heard and that everybody will be seeking something slightly different. There is not a magic wand and a magic response that will suit everybody's needs. And we, as people who are in government no matter at what time and no matter at what level, need to be aware that we do have a responsibility. And, I mean, I think governments must be constantly reminded that they do have this responsibility because these things happened 
under government legislation and government funding. And that should never be that should never be lost in the argument. Yeah. We damage people. We damage people. Our governments damage people. Um, one of the more recent trends that we're noticing in Jigsaw Queensland's forced adoption support service lately is that more siblings, children, and even grandchildren who've been affected by adoption are contacting us. It doesn't. And Never it really ends. highlights sometimes I think we're just at the apex of, of yep. the problem. You know, it's wide, it's intergenerational. Um, mm-hmm. And because of DNA testing now, there's more people discovering later in life that they were adopted, yep. secrets and lies are exposed, and also really interesting connections are made. And um, in fact, it was a, through a DNA test that I discovered that I had a family connection on my father's side to someone who worked very closely with you. Absolutely. Meredith Newman from your office. Um, and someone who has gone through the whole experience and, as you know, um, has been a tremendous support to so many people. In fact, I often think people call my office to talk with Meredith rather than to talk with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that was just an amazing connection because she reached out to me. I didn't even, you know, make the connection at the time because I find DNA to be confusing most of the time. So do and, I. Um, yep. I mean, that was just incredible for her and I, I think, because we both had this yeah. experience and history with forced adoptions from different angles and yeah. that was just incredible. Um, so you did mention earlier that you um, do speak to people as you go about and they do mm. share their stories with you. Um, yeah. Are you finding that often it's those one, one step separated people like, you know, siblings now, or ch- grandchildren or children of? Yeah. yeah. Simply because of the time, time gap. I mean, there are still awful issues with families and and not getting enough support and broken families now. But this particular issue of the forced adoptions, um, it was, as you can see by those dates of the inquiry, there were particular times when it was seemingly more commonplace and more accepted and and less questions were asked about it in the past. So that now a lot of the people who are immediately affected there are getting older um, and that's an issue in themselves because... uh, their, their, the loss is that as they're getting older, they know that perhaps they'll never have any reconciliation and that's so sad. But, yeah, no, it's um, uh, siblings and it certainly is um, grandchildren. I mean, I've met a number of grandchildren of, of people who are, are in this situation and um, are confused by it because uh, they, they don't understand at all how it could have happened. And also they're very concerned that, Sometimes they didn't find out until much later, so they couldn't have the conversations. Even if they were difficult conversations, they couldn't have them because the person involved who had the best knowledge was no longer with them. So that's that anger and and loss about missing that opportunity. Um, And I think there's a great concern um, with many of the people I know that um, the current system, uh, which has had so many children um, who are now in in care um, that many of the same traumas could continue that fa- broken families uh, without support are again judged and uh, the system support is not strong enough to let them have the choices that other people should have and uh, we just see with the figures currently from um, out of care uh, it is horrific all across the community and so particularly strong in First Nations communities. And I think that um, surely the lessons of the past should be front and centre when people are developing legislation. And it's not easy. It is not easy. But what we do know that if you do provide support, if you do um, provide the kind of support that people can have, that they do have options to education, that they do have options to finding out about themselves and having a choice. I think um, one of the things we're really strong about in the inquiry is that we're talking about forced adoptions where there was no choice, where that control was gone. And when you lose that, you lose your identity. So this element of intrusion and force um, must be seen for what it was, which was dangerous and ineffective policy. Yeah. Yeah, definitely those intergenerational things. You know, when I discovered the history of my family on my mother's side, I just found um, generation after generation of um, separation through whether it be adoption or abandonment or suicide or, and I could just see the pattern that led to where I turned out, you know, yeah. and 
and knowing those things even is just important because it helps me make sure that it stops with me and it doesn't continue on down, you know, yep. further generations. So, and we know better now. I mean, yeah. ignorance has always been the curse. Mm-hmm. And now, through the work of the people that ensured that um, the inquiry happened and the commission happened, um, that ignorance is no longer able to be used as an excuse because we know and people have always known but now it's a public acknowledgement and also that apology that was made said that it wouldn't happen again you know and the state apologies or and i know how much effort went into the developing the wording as we've said before but it was a statement that what happened was wrong and that it wouldn't happen again uh that's that's a commitment that's a commitment that's been made no one can be protected from life so many things happen that over which you have no control at all but who you are and where you come from you should have some control over you should be able to know that and learn from it and build for the next generations because who you are now is the history of the future Look, Claremore, thank you so much for your time today. I know you're very busy still. And um, it's in, you know, in this year that we commemorate the 10th anniversary of the National Apology for Forced Adoptions. It was so important that we do talk to you and, and get your views. And I know that your continued support is greatly appreciated in our community. Uh, you can't not. You can't not. I, I mean, uh, this is something that's been acknowledged. These are people I know and um, we can't let it happen again. We just can't. And we'll put up some relevant links about forced adoption and the National Apology on our podcast notes page. So be sure to check them out. Um, Before we say goodbye, though, do you have a story that you'd like to share with us? If so, jump onto the main podcast page of the Jigsaw Queensland website and complete the prospective guest form that you'll find there. And note that Adopt Perspective can be listened to by people all over the world. So bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 3358 If you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Jo Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. Thank you.